Phillies greatest success in their Connie Mack Stadium years came during the era of the Whiz Kids of the late 40s and early 50s. A charter member of the Whiz Kids was Richie Ashburn, who achieved fame with the Phillies first as a player and later as a broadcaster. I'll tell you what, what impressed me about Connie Mack Stadium the first time I walked into it was a number of people there were about 35,000 people there it was a sellout I had never seen that many people in one spot before and that, I mean the, the awesome size of it and the noise of all those people I had uh, I grew up in Tilden Nebraska population around a thousand just the the noise and the size and, and the beautiful uh, playing field was, was very that's one of the, one of the most. Uh, uh, that was one of the best moments I think in my major league career. Really, was that first day in the County Mac Stadium. I was a center fielder, of course. It was a perfect outfield for a center fielder. It was huge. Center field cover a lot of ground, so I had a lot of room to roam. And then once again, the grass out there was was just manicured. Uh, you, you could charge a ball without fear of, you know, a bad hop, and uh, it was probably the best outfield for a center fielder in the league at that time. Our groundskeeper used to build up the line a little, the third base foul line a little bit for me, so the butt that went down that line wouldn't roll foul. And, and some people would think that's cheating. I'll tell you what it was. It was equal time because when I went on the road, they did just the opposite. They built the line so it tapered so the ball would roll foul. Wetland one more time, sad, and here comes the 2-2 two -two pitch to Edgar Martinez down. A fastball, swung on, hit the deep center field. Bernie Williams goes back, and it is! Get off the line, Brandon! Oh, fuck it, this time, Grandpa! It is a grand salami! And the Mariners lead it 10-6! I don't believe it! From high atop the Robinson Deering Studio Complex and straight out of God's country, Pauley's Island, South Carolina, the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network proudly presents Backwards K Pod. And now, here's the host of the show, Jake Robinson. Good moment, baseball universe. What is up? It's your boy, Jake the Snake Robinson out of Pauley's Island, South Carolina. Holler if you hear me, half man, half podcast machine, back in the Captain Kirk chair, shields down, photons up, starboard side 8 degrees with a 33% thrust, and prepare to engage on this week's digital audio show that I call Backwards K-Pod, where we collect ballplayers and their stories. Want to welcome everyone in, make yourself comfortable, huddle up around your podcast machine. And let's talk a little baseball, shall we? First of all, let's get the particulars out of the way. If you're new to BKP and you like what you hear, please hook a good brother up with subscriptions and downloads. I'm on all podcast platforms, wherever you listen to your pods. 
uh, Stitcher, Google Play, Samsung, Overcast, iHeart. I'm all tangled up in the web, brah. If you use Apple or Spotify, please remember to rate and review me as you see fit. I ain't scared. I come through the hood every Tuesday with that free baseball smoke. I will never charge my awesome audience a penny for that content, unlike a lot of these other dudes. No Patreon, no crowdsourcing. The economy sucks. I mean, it could literally collapse at any fucking moment. I'll find another way to make it work, but it starts with subscriptions, downloads, follows, rates, and reviews. I do have some cool merch coming along shortly. I can't wait to share some of that with you. I'll be talking about that in a few short weeks as it starts rolling in. But look, the truth is, I didn't start this program to become rich. It started as a passion project because of, you know, the owner's lockout this past winter. I had real genuine concerns that this labor war was going to be long and bloody. And also, the truth is, I mean, quite, I was born to preach the gospel of baseball, baby, to the world. There's no question about it. The game has always been the one constant in my life. She never turns her back on me. The good times, and especially the bad times. Baseball is there. I truly do not know what I would do without baseball. I mean, who would I be? I, I, I don't know. I really don't. So, this is the way I replay base. I repay baseball through my voice, the retelling of the stories of baseball, so that it will be on record long after I'm gone. And my vision for this show is to have it become, you know, like this audio version of Baseball Wikipedia. And thanks to my growing Seamhead Army, I'm invigorated to being the best I can be as I have covered over 160 years of baseball in here in just 21 shows. From Moses Fleetwood Walker all the way up to Shohei Otani. And folks, I gotta be completely transparent here. Every single show that I've done on here, I always have some kind of understanding and knowledge about the topic. But this week, I was pretty much clueless. And I found it challenging and rewarding all in the same vein. All I knew about it was that it was beautiful. And it was one of my favorite stadiums on MLB 2K to play with. And other than that, not much. So this week, I will be covering one of the cathedrals of baseball from yesteryear. And all her splendor and glory. We're talking Shy Park slash Connie Mack Stadium. And, okay, three things before we get started. First thing, this show goes out to Cecil down in Tampa, Florida. Huge A's fan. And the reason I'm starting with Shy as our first yesteryear stadium is twofold. First of all, Cecil, that dude's a super fan. Been following since day one. Every single week he sends me comments, warm wishes, uh, sends those to backwardskpod, gmail.com, without fail. And number two, well, he was a little disappointed that I would not be doing the story of two stadiums in the MLB. The A's Mausoleum out in Oakland, Alameda, and the Trop down in Tampa. I, you know, look, I want to give you the biography of all 30 stadiums, but I just ain't doing them too. I mean, they're, they're, they're awful. I'm not doing t- those two shitboxes. So he's a little disappointed by that, but he was also understanding as, really, he had no interest in hearing about the A's awful stadium himself. So, as a compromise, we agreed on Shy Park. So, Cecil, this one's for you, buddy. May or may not be my most listened to show, but I don't give a shit. Either way, you deserve this. Secondly, before we go in on Shy, 
uh, Omar from Chicago sent me another short little story about a yesteryear park that I wanted to share real quick with the with the audience. If you remember in the Wrigley show from a couple weeks ago, we talked about how the Cubs originally played on the west side of Chicago, and they actually played in the aptly named West Side Park. Well, Omar taught me that the term out in left field, you know, there's something going on out in left field there. You know, like I'm hearing voices out in left field. That actually came from that very same Weston Park. Apparently, there was a crazy farm, a loony bin. I don't know what the correct term is for it. You know, it was a building behind the left field wall of that West Side Park. And sometimes the fans in the park would hear the most insane blood-curling noises coming from Arkham Asylum over there behind the walls, uh, thus spawning the term out in left field. And, man, I love Omar. He always has some really cool Chicago insight for me. Thank you, Omar. Thank you. Great story. I had no idea. And last but not least, I want to keep it transparent with my audience. I want to always be honest with you. I'm going through some medical issues right now. I'm not really ready to go up into it on the air yet. But I ask that you bear with me today as hopefully my presentation of this show today isn't negatively impacted by my condition. I'll touch on this a little more after the show. So bear with me here. I'm, I'm, I'm you know, I'm a gamer. I'm in. But bear with me. It's not my best performance. <laughs> okay. And on to today's topic. Shy Park. This is the third stadium we've done here at Backwards K-Pod. The other two are Fenway and Wrigley. Both of those stadiums are a little bit younger than Shy Park. Uh, if you want to hear about those fascinating buildings, you can always go to DiamondSnakeJake.Podbean.com dot com to uh, you know listen to my archives there, but this will be the first of our yesteryear stadiums. I'm looking forward to learning about these cribs: Evans Field, Polo Grounds, Comiskey Sportsman Park, all of them. Old Yankee Stadium. One of my fondest memories in life is growing up as a young boy, listening to all these old timers opining about the good old days. The stadiums of yesteryear and the players that graced those fields. I, I, I don't know. I always found those stories fascinating. Roberto Clemente and Forbes Field. I used to hear a lot of those stories when I lived uh, in central Pennsylvania. And I love them. They're, they're fascinating. Well, our story today, it begins way back in 1908. It's a brave new America. She's finding her place in the modern world as a major global power. Airplanes, skyscrapers, inventions, the race to the North Pole. 1908 was a major breakthrough year for the United States, propelling her into the future. It was the same year that Thomas Edison said anything, everything is possible. 1908 began with a 700-pound electric ball that fell from a flagpole high atop the New York Times building. And it's the very first ball ever dropped in Times Square. So we're manipulating electricity to drop 700-pound balls on top of skyscrapers. Wilbur Wright flew a plane for two and a half hours, the longest flight ever made at that time. Admiral Robert Peary began his quest to reach the North Pole. He claims he made it. I don't know. Sounds a little shady to me, but okay. 
Model T went into production at Henry Ford's plant in Detroit, Michigan. There was a six-automobile race around the world from New York to Paris. With a U.S. population of almost 90 million people in 1908, the federal revenue was 40 times greater than it had been 100 years before. And America was now on par with Great Britain and Germany as economic world powers. American engineers began digging the Panama Canal, and they would have 50 miles of it dug by the year's end. The world was changing quickly, and President Teddy Roosevelt and his aggressive world policies were a major component in the equation for America stepping up on the world stage in this new world. And Thomas Edison was spot on. Anything and everything was possible in this brave 1908 new world. So, with this backdrop in your mind, when the construction of Shive goes into effect, our story actually starts in 1901. That was the official year that the Philadelphia A's became a charter member of the American Leagues as a second team to rival and compete with the Phillies. On April 26, 1901, the A's made their team debut as a loss to the Washington Senators by the final out. Five to one. In those days, they were playing a sm- in a like this small wooden stadium called Columbia Park. It was located on 30th and Oxford Street, and the North Philadelphia side of town known as Brewery Town. And never could owner Ben Schaub, in his wildest dreams, could have envisioned just how popular his American League team would eventually become. As I mentioned. The Phillies were already there as they had been established in 1883. To this day, the Phillies are the Major League Baseball's oldest, continuous, same name, same city franchise. But the A's fandom is spreading like wildfire, Tommy Rich and Filthy. As the Athletics won the AL pennant in just their second season of competitive baseball. The Phillies, by comparison, didn't win their first pennant until 1915 and their second until the Whiz Kids of 1950. The 1901 A's team attracted over 206,000 fans to their crib that year with a maximum capacity of about 9,500 per game. The A's had the highest attendance in the American League and they were quadrupling Philadelphia's uh, Phillies attendance numbers Uh, at the Philadelphia Baseball Grounds, which would later be renamed the Baker Bowl in 1913. When the Athletics won their second pennant in 1905, attendance had ballooned to around 550,000 people. By 1907, it's now 625,000. And at this point, the A's are now turning away hundreds, if not thousands, of fans away every game, as the team would often have to barricade the gates because the house was always packed and fans were still trying to get in. The Philadelphia A's were the hottest ticket in town. Ben Scheib didn't enjoy turning people away from his product. The young sport, it needed as many eyes watching as possible, especially if he's going to make any kind of money doing this, you know, baseball thing. So, he figures, I'll just build a bigger stadium. While scouting for locations, Scheib found his ideal location on Lehigh Avenue between 20th 
and 21st Streets, which was literally five blocks west of the Phillies crib, <laughs> which, sidebar here, I mean, I find that remarkable when you consider how personal and aggressive MLB owners are nowadays when it comes to territory, right? I mean, look at the Angels and the Dodgers or the Orioles and the Nationals and these territorial right disputes today with the money and the TV contracts at stake can really become contentious. And here's this upstart American League team who is winning pennants and decimating the Phillies fan base. They're moving in literally right next door, five blocks away. (laughs) that shit would never fly in today's baseball (laughs) but I digress Shive liked this location the land was cheap in fact the the savvy Shive he he got insider's information that, that the hospital located on the property at the time was closing down so acting quickly on his tip he, he, he bought the 5.75 acres of land for $67,500, which in the 2022 bloated economy comes out to about $3 million today. And what he would do is he would use associates to buy these parcels of land, you know, like these straw buyers, and then uh, with the guarantee that he would get the land back in the end. So as not to arouse suspicion of his intent, especially amongst the other owners, because they're going to charge him more money if they know what he's up to. On the surface, it basically looked like just a bunch of uh, rich dudes grabbing land. Also, Shime loved the fact that it was uh, accessible by public transportation. Trolley cars, uh, it was near the widest street in Philly, the aptly named Broad Street. And both the Penn and Reading train lines had stations nearby. So... All these things coming together, the the insider's information, he's got some straw uh, buyers here, so he's, you know, kind of on the down low. Well, he's very much on the down low, and it's really a a wise, savvy move. Now, Scheib wanted state-of-the-art, a stadium that was using all the brightest and most innovative features that technology was bringing to the table virtually every day in 1908. He hired William Steele and Sons to construct it. It was Steele who was building some of the city's most important structures back then, including the highly acclaimed Witherspoon building, the city's very first steel and concrete skyscraper. He built that from 1895 to 1897. The firm also designed and built the first cement mixer truck, which, you know, is absolutely, it revolutionized the concrete industry. He could, you know lay out more concrete than anybody else. He had these big machines that were mixing it up. Steel broke ground in April of 1908. Finished the project in less than a year at a cost of 301000 which is around $9.3 million today, 2022 economy. It took over 500 tons of steel. Several thousand cubic yards of reinforced concrete were used in the construction, making it the very first stadium in pro sports to be made completely out of concrete and steel. The original stadium layout, it had a double-deck grandstand that ran from first base, it wrapped around home plate, and it continued down the line to third base. A grandstand roof protected the fans from the filthy elements, 
and metal folding chairs now replaced the common bleacher seats of the day. Uh, these were on both levels of the grandstand. The price of admission on opening day was a dollar or $31 today. And the upper deck seats, can you imagine, a dollar is worth $31 today. I'm sorry, that just, wow, mind blown. And the upper deck seats were 50 cents, or let me look at my little calculator here. Yeah, well, if they're a dollar is $31, and 50 cents got to be 15.50, right? So the upper deck seats were 50 cents or 15.50 in today's economy. An additional 13,000 pavilion bleachers seated along the first and third base lines to the foul poles. Shy price those tickets out of twenty five cents, or seven seventy five today, because well, as he once put it, the man who lives by the sweat on his brow should have as good as a chance to watch a baseball game as the guy who never rolled up his sleeves to earn a dollar. As the Evening Telegram, the local newspaper once read, Shy had created the stadium for the masses as well as the classes. In addition to twenty three thousand seats. There were two standing room sections, one in the outfield grass, one in the wild aisles, uh, wide aisles behind the pavilion bleachers. Those seats would accommodate another 17,000 fans. Now, the rectangular plot of city block land that was uh, obtained for the stadium, it provided for some quirky and imbalanced dimensions on the field. The block was 40 feet shorter east to west than it was running north to south. With home plate located in the southwest corner of that block, the right field pole sat at 340 feet, and the left field foul pole stood 378 feet from home plate. And center field was enormous. Cavernous. At its deepest, the two perpendicular outfield walls running along their block, they met and formed a hard right angle. And that was 515 feet from home plate. The exterior of the cathedral re- resembles like more like a, uh, a French Renaissance palace more than a baseball field. Outside, the grandstand had large arching windows, ornate brick facade, and these uh, copper-trimmed, green-slate roofs tops. They had uh, sculptures of team manager Connie Mack peering out over the main entrance. Other gate entrances had, like, these old English A carvings. And above the 21st Street entrance was a team store, and there was also a restaurant for patrons on the ground level that faced both Lehigh and 21st Street. The most iconic feature of the exterior was the domed Coppola Tower on the corner of 21st and Lehigh. And in there it contained the business offices of Ben's sons, Jack and Tom, and the dome itself sat over the Oval Office of the Game Master and Manager, Connie Mack. On April 12th, 1909, the A's made their shy park debut as pitcher Gettysburg Eddie, Eddie Plank, shut down the Red Sox 8-1. to At 9 o'clock that morning, uh, the line into the stadium was 
already wrapped around the entire city block. As the restless fans are losing patience trying to get in, the nervous ushers close the gate as the mobs began to get unruly. And I feel like right here i got to remind you, in that Wrigley show, and if you haven't heard the Wrigley show, again, diamondsnakejake.podbean.com or whatever your podcast platform is, you got to go back and check it out. But I explained in the Wrigley uh, show that ushers back then were not like ushers that we know now. You know, friendly people who are full-time or part-time employees, whatever whatever you call it. Uh, it wasn't like that. Basically, on game day, the owners of these baseball teams would send guys out to recruit, you know, boys and, and, and men to be ushers for the day. They pay a little money, and as you can uh, assume, there was certainly a lot of bribery going on to get better seats. I mean, these people were not professional ushers. A lot of them were old men and young boys. And, you know, when they saw situations where crowd began to get unruly, you know, they really weren't prepared. They weren't trained in how to react to things like that. So you had situations like this. Every once in a while. And Wrigley was the first stadium to actually change that. Uh, they had a guy came in. He talked to Mr. Wrigley. And like I said, you can, you can listen to that show. And that was the beginning of professional ushers was a Wrigley. So back here, this is even before Wrigley. Uh, you know, there are no full-time ushers. They're just old men and, and young boys. And the fans... Who, you know, I mean, let's face it, fans can be like sharks in the water. You know, they're just looking for chum. They began pushing against these locked barricades. The weight became too much. And the Philadelphians rushed the new crib, forcing their way in without paying. And about 7,000 fans were roped off in the standing room only in the outfield area that I told you about. Another 6,000 fans watched from rooftops around the block. And like I said, the A's beat Boston 8-1. Uh, side note here. Uh, Eddie Plank's battery mate that day was a catcher named Doc Powers, who in his other life was like a real-life physician and one of the most popular players around the league by the boys. And he started becoming ill in the seventh inning of that opening day. And two weeks later, he would die from complications from peritonitis, which is caused from infectious Bacteria of the blood. Hmm. So, you know, I don't know what that is. I, I guess I should have webbed MD that a little better. Perry, I'm thinking, is dental, right? Teeth, right? Perry, tontitis, uh, you know, infection of the blood. I'm thinking he probably had some kind of wound in his mouth and, it, you know, the blood mixed into his body and, you know, it was disastrous. But I did find that interesting. His battery mate on opening day in the first game of that stadium, he dies two weeks later from this peritonitis. But look, I mean, all in all, besides, you know, your catcher being on the verge of death here, the day of the stadium was a hit. And it really transferred into the season and the standings as... The Athletics had immediate success in the palatial state-of-the-art crib. They would finish second that 1909 season, but would come back full of piss and vinegar, destroying the Cubs in the 1910 World Series in five games. 
The A's would also beat the New York Giants for chips in 1911 and 1913, giving the fledgling team three World Series championships in five years. With this success on the field and at the gate, Shive and Mack, they felt like expansion of the park was in order. They added a new on-roof section of left-field bleachers and also some roof-covered structure for the pavilions along the first and third base lines. However, those crowds that, that Mack and Shive envisioned, well, they never came. Despite the great play in the field and the added seats, Attendance dipped from 1909 high of 675,000 to 346,000 in 1914. Not only were they losing at the gate, they were facing stiff competition from the upstart Federal League, who began playing in 1914 and were now brazenly, brazenly poaching Major League Baseball players. Among the A's who would jump ship were his uh, two-headed pitching monsters, Eddie Plank and Chief Bender. The furiously competitive Connie Mack, who now he's in the fucking red. After losing his two stalwarts, he says, fuck this. I'd rather sell my town for cash than lose any more players for nothing to this pain-in-the-ass Federal League. So by the middle of the 1915 season, Mack has sent future Hall of Famers Eddie Collins, Frank Home Run Baker, and Herb Pencock packing, dropping the curtain on what many call Connie Mack's First Dynasty. And folks, I'm not going to speak too much on Connie Mack's life today, as I promise you, of course, there is a Connie Mack story to be told soon here on Backwards K-Pod, where we collect ballplayers and their stories. Now, of course, you know, losing all that talent in a fire sale, it had a detrimental impact on the reeling team that not even the great, and I do mean great, Connie Mack could fix overnight. The team suffered through seven-place finishes for seven straight seasons, and attendance plummeted. However, during those seven years, Connie and the Shives were rebuilding and plotting for future success. Attendance slowly started making its way back to the beautiful park. In 1922, Ben Shive dies, and his son Jack and Tom assume ownership of the club, and they shared control. And the Suns decided to again upgrade the stadium. They replaced the wide open left field bleachers with a double decked roof terrace. They installed a 750 foot seat, I'm sorry, a 750 seat mezzanine section. And by raising the grandstand roof, they now have room to install a press box for the growing game and another 3,500 seats below that. By 1929, the Philadelphia A's are again a baseball powerhouse. Arguably one of the best single baseball season uh, teams ever. I mean, honestly, you you can put it right up there with the Murderer's Row, the Gas House Gang, the 1976 Big Red Machine. They were phenomenal. If you ever get a chance, do yourself a favor, go look at the 1929 Philadelphia A's on baseball reference. Behind the Hall of Fame core of Jimmy Fox, Lefty Grove, Al Simmons, Mickey Cochran, the A's finished with a 104 and 46 records, 18 games ahead of the second place Yankees. 
May again slapped the Cubs in their face, gave the finger in five games. They would repeat in 1930 and three-peat in 31. The local scribes called this collection of stars Connie Mack's Second Dynasty. And again, it looked like smooth sailing going forward. Uh, the team is now drawing 880,000-plus fans. However, comma, the Great Depression would hit Philadelphia hard as men and women were trying to figure out how to survive in the midst of economic collapse. The attendance at Shibe once again fell off, and Mac would again be forced to sell off his stars. <laughs> See, no, I'm beginning to feel like Connie owns, like, the Marlins or something, right? <laughs> I mean, really, build it up, reach a team goal, sell your stars, repeat. <laughs> it's just crazy how this story goes. And again, I'm a guy who literally knew nothing about Shy Park. It's just so fascinating to me. So, once again, the A stink. Almost all Americans are affected by this cataclysmic economy, especially poor people. It's not translating at the gate. And the A's decided to do something that would, one, break a revered tradition, and two, damage a great relationship with the surrounding community. And that relationship would never be the same again. From the time Shy Park opened in 09, through the end of Max. Second Dynasty. The homeowners on 20th Street had an open view of the field from the rooftops of their home. Now, eventually, the enterprising homeowners, they built bleachers atop their homes, and they charged people a dollar for a ticket. The homeowners would then send their kids to local vendors and have them buy as many 10-cent hot dogs as they could carry, and they would then sell the hot dogs to the fans on the rooftops for 20 cents. So, during the 1929 World Series, almost 3,000 people watched from those makeshift bleachers on 20, 20th Street on the rooftops. Now, I'm no math major, but $1 times 3,000 is, it's 3,000, I'm pretty, it's $3,000, I'm pretty sure. $3,000 in 1929 has the purchasing power of almost $51,000 today. So these little entrepreneurs are celebrating capitalism and making money. By 1932, after three pennants, they are making money hand over fist. And folks, my words cannot truly illustrate the scene. And if you would like to push pause here, go into your Google machine and look up the 1929 World Series 20th Street Side Park. It is absolute bedlam. You can see it. You can Philly feel it. Philly is on fire, and they love Mr. Mac and their hometown A's. And as long as the attendance was up, neither Mac nor the Shives cared much. Well, let me amend that. They, they might have cared, but they tolerated it. But all that changed when the Great Depression hit, and the Second Dynasty was sold off. With the gate being crushed, the Shives would look out to see an empty bowl with a full house across 20th Street on the rooftops. And Jack Scheib had enough. And the winter of 1934, he begins construction on a 22-foot extension wall on top of the existing wall, making the wall 50 feet higher and obstructing any view from rooftop on 20th. 
the angered neighbors, they called it the Connie Mack spite wall. Even though Connie had nothing to do with it, it was all Jack Shimes doing. Many players, they hated the wall as well. They, you know, it, they felt like it took home runs from their stats, and because of the different texture of the wall, it lended itself to like these crazy, quirky caroms. The angry residents would sue te- the team to get the fences taken down, but they were ultimately beaten in court. In 1938, the Phillies were abandoning uh, their sinking ship of a stadium, the Bigger Bowl, and they became tenants of the athletics at Shy Park. Despite resistance from the neighbors, Mack would install eight 146-foot light towers, and he had them erected. They were... Uh, Shy Park is the place where it was the first AL night game. And that was played on May 16, 1939, with the A's losing to the Tribe 8-3. After the 1938 season, the uh, Phillies, they fell in hard times. Other than being in the hunt in 1942, the, the A's were like mired in, in mediocrity. The Phillies, on the other hand, who they've been stockpiling young talent on the farm after World War II. They finally punched their ticket in 1950 with the Whiz Kids after dramatically defeating the Brooklyn Dodgers on the last day of the season to win the NL pennant. Unfortunately, they would be swept by the New York Yankees in the World Series. After the 1950 season, the great Connie Mack would retire after a 50-year managerial tenure. Still the longest in baseball history. The Mack children changed the name of the stadium in like this real jump-the-shark moment to Connie Mack Stadium in 1953. And that was basically, you know, just this last-ditch effort to uh, rejuvenate attendance totals, but it didn't work. In 1954, the A's drew over, you know, just a little bit over 300 grand. And that was almost half of what the Phillies were bringing in at that time. So, the writing on the wall was clear. Filthy could no longer support two Major League Baseball teams, and the city had chosen the Phillies as their team of choice. In August of 1954, the A's were sold to Chicago businessman Arnold Johnson for $3.37 million. Johnson would then move the team to Kansas City. I feel like I should tell you that uh, $3.37 million in 1954 is worth $37 million today in 2022. So, with the A's bolting town, Phillies owner Bob Carpenter, he put his own spin on his inherited stadium, and he covered the outfield walls in advertising to generate revenue streams. He installed new fencing that lessened the center field distance down to 447 feet. <laughs> 447 feet. Are you kidding me? Thanks for taking it from 515 to 447, dude. He purchased a 50-foot high scoreboard uh, and set Ballantine's beer on the top of it, and it was capped off with a long, Longin's clock. <laughs> The last baseball game in the stadium's history was October 1st, 1970, when the hometown fighting Phils of Filthy beat the Montreal Expos by the final of 2-1 to one 
with Tim McCarver scoring the walk-off and last run in the ballpark storied history in the 10th inning. And what followed was sheer madness as the fans bum-rushed the sacred ground. They ripped the stadium to shred. They stole everything that wasn't nailed down. And everything that was, for that matter, you know, again, you got to see this. At some point, go to YouTube, search Last Game at Shine Park, and you can see on the telecast, as soon as the third out is called, a guy runs to home plate and tries to steal it. And realizing that it's secured into the ground, and seeing this crowd, like, rushing behind him, he quickly changes strategy and steals the one thing at home plate that isn't nailed down. And that's the bat that hit the game-winning hit. And you can see it on the telecast. He tries to take the plate, no luck, grab the bat, and then you just lose him. And literally a sea of thousands of fans with the same idea. Uh, people stole sod. They took seats home. I mean, not one or two, like whole rows of seats. And to see this beautiful house being systematically torn to shreds, it was horrible to me. Especially when you consider that, you know, the Phillies went from this to the fucking vet. <laughs> I mean, come on. You're going from, you know, a great up palace of a baseball stadium to vet. Good Lord. Well, look, I know those, those, uh, ashtray, toilet bowl, you know, cookie cutter. Stadiums. We're eventually going to hit on them too as well. Over at 62 seasons of service, Shy Park drew over 47 million fans. Between the A's and Phillies, the stadium saw eight league pennants. The A's played in seven World Series during their tenure while winning three of their five chips at Shy Field. Or Shy Park, I'm sorry. It was an all star host in 1943 and 52. It saw the first AL night game. It saw four athletic no-nos. And it saw Sadie Koufax pitch one of his four no-hitters against the Phillies. Events at Shibe included Negro Leaguer games um, from 1909 to 1945. In fact, the Negro League's Philadelphia Stars played their home games at Shibe during the 40s, and they would often draw scores of crowds. The Philadelphia Eagles of the NFL, they called Shine Park home from 1940 to 1957. And that's where the Eagles won NFL championships in 1948-1949. Less than a year after the final baseball game was played there, two mischievous boys taking a break from like this uh, traveling religious group they were touring the city with. They snuck into the ballpark and accidentally started a five-alarm fire. The blaze ripped through the upper deck, uh, caused the roof to collapse, and the ballpark remained in disrepair and decay for four years. Uh, basically, before a city judge you know, issued an order to demolish her. And the date for that order was July 13, 1976. The last remnants of the once majestic stadium was removed when the famous quarter tower and that dome couple I told you about that you can see prominently on many pictures, that was the last piece of the stadium to be removed. And look, I think I'm going to end it there. There are still a few things about uh, Shibe 
and you can go out there on the web. I feel as though as we we move further and further away from her, that she kind of, you know, just becomes forgotten. But I got to be honest. I enjoy learning about side this week. As I told you before, I really enjoy learning about stadiums. When, when I research stadiums, I like to get a pulse of the neighborhood, where they're located. I believe stadiums, teams, they're just an extension of civic pride. And really, I enjoyed learning about baseball in Philadelphia this week. Maybe you will too. I implore you, uh, if you're interested in learning more, do your own research and, you know, check her out. Check out the stuff that's out there on Side Park. So, you know, I hope you enjoyed this week's program. Remember, you can find me on the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network Facebook and YouTube pages. Our show account on Twitter is backwards underscore K underscore podcast. My personal account is at jrobbie1. Please remember to share with all your little seamhead friends. And thank you, thank you, thank you for being the greatest baseball podcast fans on the planet. Pass the word. DiamondSnakeJake.Podbean.com for the podcast challenge. Now, i got to be honest with you guys. I'm having some fairly uh, serious medical issues these days. I'm not really ready to go in public about it on the air, but I may be missing some time coming up. It could be next week. I'm truly at my wit's end about it. I promise you guys a show every Tuesday, but it just might not be feasible this week. I hate that I'm saying that, and I'm going to do everything in my power to keep my word to my audience, but surgery is indeed in my future. Hopefully my condition didn't affect this presentation too much today. As you know, I am committed to this programming to my bloody demise. And <laughs> I'm as true a hard-hit Aries as you will ever find. I don't believe in obstacles except for the ones you build in your mind. I will find a way to get these shows out. But just in case, know that it's for a legitimate reason. I'm only, uh, I'm only more determined, though. As our next show is on NBA superstar Michael Jordan attempting to play Major League Baseball after winning three titles with the Chicago Bulls. But look, you know damn well that's another story for another pod. Thanks for hanging in there with me this week. Parents, if you see your kid sitting on the couch playing video games all day, take him or her outside and play a game of catch. Thank you all for coming out. God bless and win the day.